I love Jared Allen. Fear the frog. Pow! With the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. <laughs> Jared Allen with authority. This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I am your host, lifelong Cleveland Cavalier fan Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio. This is my Cavs and NBA podcast, and what a season to launch this thing. 30 and 19 at the moment. Coming off a massive, dominant win against the Milwaukee Bucks, the reigning NBA champions, where we saw a great performance from, and I'm focusing on Allen and Stevens because those two were the ones who were largely tasked with slowing down Giannis. And outside of a third quarter where we saw some questionable whistles on an awesome block from Stevens that was called a foul, and then, of course, a strip from him in the play that immediately followed that that was also called a foul. His stats were good. Giannis's stats were good. But I think if you looked at what the Cavs did to that team throughout the game, not only were the Cavs blistering from outside, but their defense against Giannis was very encouraging because there's certain matchups I've never looked forward to. One of those, of course, being Embiid, and the second being Giannis. And I say that even when LeBron was here. Giannis put in his work. He is one of those guys who... Most times, you just don't have an answer for him. And the Cavs, this is one game. You know, don't take it as it's a one regular season game. This would look far different in the playoffs. Giannis would assert himself far more. And I think we saw some of that in the third quarter. When things went away from the Bucks. all of a sudden Giannis realized, I got to do more on my own or we're not going to stand any chance. And still, the Cavs kept them at a safe distance because Giannis scored, but then the Cavs scored. I mean, they were trading off buckets, but the Cavs were getting a significant amount of threes, and they were able to keep the Bucks down and win that game and close it out. And clearly, one of the biggest wins of the year. For a team to be down 11 and to turn it around like that and win the game running away, incredible victory. And definitely one when I knew, okay, I got to do a podcast before the next game because it is a different feeling. Coming off a huge win, it's just a much more positive vibe. Uh, And certainly there's been plenty of those this year because they've already won 30 games. So let's get into some things. You could go back on my timeline or in this podcast and find what my preseason predictions are. There are some swing and misses, and there are some things that proved out to be relatively accurate. The first one of those that I missed horribly on, let's just focus on my failings. I expected the Cleveland Cavaliers to win 32 games this season. What a goddamn idiot. This podcast host is an idiot. He's the dumbest guy on the internet because he got that prediction dead wrong. Dead wrong. Kill him. Kill him. Kill him and his family. I am two games away from looking like an idiot because the Cavs could surpass that total and will surpass that total before the NBA All-Star break. Just look at the schedule ahead for the Cavs. It's truly against some of the worst teams in the league. Between now and the All-Star break, the Cavs take on, in order, the Pistons, the Pelicans, the Rockets. Awful, awful, awful. Then the Hornets, solid team. Then the Pacers, underwhelming. Then the Spurs, underwhelming, then the Pacers again, underwhelming, and the Sixers, always a challenge. Embiid, always a difficult opponent. That game could go either way. And then finally, 
Before shutting it down for the All-Star break, we have a Garland versus Trey Young matchup in Atlanta. That could go either way, but I would expect the Cavs to win that. So you've got a good chance of ripping off at least another seven wins here. I, and, I, and I'm saying that conservatively. I'm saying if they, if they beat the Pistons, the Pelicans, the Rockets in the next three, and then they take down the Pacers twice, that's five, and then they take down the Spurs, that's six wins. They just have to win one of the games against the Hornets, the 76ers, or the Hawks to get seven wins, which would push them to, at, you'd have to think at that point, that they're competing for the number one seed at All-Star break because the Heat schedule is slightly tougher. I like the Cavs' chances of being right there. They're only a game and a half back now on the Heat, who may be without Jimmy Butler. He's dealing with toe things. He's in and out of the lineup. Uh, Tyler Hero, the leading candidate for sixth man of the year, I would say at this point, back in the lineup. And Bam is back, so they might just keep rolling. Maybe it's wishful thinking on my part. But the point remains that the Cavaliers are playing incredible basketball right now. And they're still absorbing injuries. They've out, Without Sexton, without Rubio, even Rondo, who they traded for, he's been in and out of the lineup. And they are seeing guys like Lamar Stevens, like Dean Wade, Kevin Love, Jetty Osman, just absorb more and more of a role within this offense when needed to keep this thing rolling. Dean Wade is a, a perfect example. This is a guy in and out of the lineup He'll go from playing 35 minutes to two minutes. Against the Bulls, two minutes. Two games later, against the Knicks, 35 minutes. And 35 huge minutes, may I add. Four three-pointers in that game to eke out a victory in a game that probably shouldn't have been that close, but it was. Not every game is going to go perfectly. Bickerstaff seemed pleased, not necessarily with the fact that the Knicks were able to hang around, but with the fact that the Cavs persevered. And they persevered in large part because what Dean Wade and Kevin Love did when they came in off the bench was incredible. And Kevin Love, I want to spend some time on him. I am going to get into his appearance on J.J. Reddick's podcast, Old Man in the Three. It was one of those feel-good scenarios for the Cavs because we know where we were this summer. There was a lot of talk. If we're being honest with ourselves, there was a huge part of the fan base who had simply had enough of Kevin Love, despite the fact that they'd have to pay to offload him or that they'd get nothing back. There were people advocating just buying him out to be done with the distraction. And Kevin Love will admit, and, and I have some clips which will support that, we'll get into all of that, but he will admit he had moments where he let his emotions get the best of him. But with two years left on the contract, the Cavs were over a barrel in the summer in the sense that it was untradeable, basically. You don't want to just buy that out. It's not like you get that money back to go sign someone. And so they went into this season with an unknown to some degree. None of us can truly say that we knew how Kevin Love would react to being demoted to being a bench player. Because if you're looking at the evidence from the past couple seasons, it certainly seemed like he wasn't the happiest guy on the roster by any means. And with a team this young and impressionable, the fear was keeping love around in a diminished role might do more harm than good. But what we've seen is between him and Rubio and now Rondo, along with what is an incredible player development staff, the bench unit of the Cavs 
is to me as big of a part of their ascension into the upper echelon of the East this year as the progression of all these young guys who we drafted to be integral parts. We had huge expectations for Allen. You don't give a guy $100 million if you don't. We had huge expectations for Garland. We have big expectations for Okoro. And hopefully, Sexton, when he returns, will continue to progress, not just with his individual talents, but his ability to gel with this new offense that has developed. One that's focused around Garland, the skills, I should say, of Garland, Allen, and Mobley. This pick-and-roll situation with lob threats is deadly and far more efficient than anything that we've seen in, well, obviously the past few seasons as the Cavs have struggled. But this blend of bench veterans who are seemingly content in whatever role they get, guys like Stevens, guys like Wade, guys like Love, and the ascension of Garland, the presence of Mobley, which has been unbelievable, obviously. I don't say it enough on this podcast because I think what ends up happening is I'm able to parallel what we saw Love from last season and the previous season to what we're getting from him now, which is by and large healthy, productive, happy, and an incredible influence. And I'm able to parallel what we got out of Osman last year, which was perhaps his worst season professionally, and then look at this season where he's a much more efficient, much more player, productive player in a, in a limited role off the bench and we're seeing the best version of these guys. Whereas Mobley, we dropped him in here. I didn't have expectations. I was hoping, and, I, and you can hear this on earlier episodes of the podcast too. My hopes for Mobley were that I thought his lack of size, his weight, would hold him back. But anybody watching these games has seen that despite Evan Mobley is a slim guy, despite the fact Evan Mobley is a slim guy, he bangs. And he's able to get rebounds to a degree which I did not know. I was thinking, well, you know, he's another guy that kind of plays in that mid-range. He's lighter. But Mobley is a great rebounder. He's been so much better in that aspect than I ever expected him to be his rookie year. I thought that would come with time and weight. It can't be understated how intelligent he is. Even as a rookie player, he's never pressing. He's never pressured. When he holds the ball and they bring doubles, you see that with certain guys in the league, and it makes me panic a little. Even the highest-profile players, guys like Carl uh, Anthony Towns or Embiid, you wonder, okay, is their desire to succeed going to outweigh what's probably the correct basketball decision here, which is finding the open man? But Mobley is exceptional at just being even-keeled, not letting doubles affect him, not letting different looks affect him. He picks his spots. And he's been incredibly effective in that regard. And I don't think there's really any doubt that he will win Rookie of the Year. I feel supremely confident at this point. After looking at some of the results from the NBA All-Star voting and the way that he is viewed by his peers, at least, the respect he's getting from the national media is on par with the respect he gets from our own fan base. And usually there's some sort of disparity in that regard. Cavs fans have been saying Darius Garland is an All-Star you know, the entire last few months. Now, he may be, he may not, but that's usually the chasm you see, and that's any fan base. Clearly, we're going to like Garland more than the national media will like Garland. But I don't know if there's really that much of a gap between the local perception of Mobley amongst Cavs fans 
and the respect he's getting nationally. I keep hearing things thrown around like top 10, top 5 to 10 player in the short term, Kevin Garnett. And we'll bring those up in the discussion about Kevin Love and some of the things that he discussed when on Old Man the Three with J.J. Redick. But that was one of the discussions was Mobley and how ready he is right now. And so now we're here right before All-Star break. They've announced the All-Star starters, just waiting on the reserves, hoping to get two Cavs in. But regardless, you're going to see Kevin Love in the three-point competition. You're going to see Mobley showing out in some of the young, you know, rookie, second-year guy games and skills competitions, things of that nature. So the Cavs will have representation there. They will get an all-star. And I will go on the record as saying they're going to get one all-star. I happen to think Allen is more likely because the front court in the Eastern Conference, his competition, now that the starters have been named, is Jason Tatum, Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, Pascal Siakam, Sabonis. I, I mean, any of those guys, like Tatum will make it, Butler will make it. But I think Allen couldn't hold off guys like Adebayo who missed a ton of time. Miles Bridges, he'll be right there neck and neck with him. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who clearly is a better option than Jared Allen. Seven spots left. Let's just handicap this. I think we can all agree Tatum will get in. Fred will get in. Jimmy Butler will get in. Zach Levine will get in. Harden will get in. And that leaves you with two spots. And we haven't brought up Mellow Ball or Garland. And in the front court, we haven't brought up Jared Allen. We haven't brought up Miles Bridges. And we haven't brought up Bam Adebayo. So that's five guys competing for two spots. Now, personally, I think of those front court guys still on the outside there, Allen, Bridges, Adebayo, I would take Allen first. And with the guards, though, it's a little more debatable. Does Darius Garland get in over Harden? Probably not. LaMelo Ball, I'd say that's 50-50. And if Allen gets in over Bridges in the front court, I don't know that I'm confident that they'll then also put in Garland over LaMelo. I think they would balance it a little bit more, but that's just me. It really kind of depends which way they skew. That's why I think it's a sure thing for Allen, but not a sure thing for Darius Garland. I don't think Siakam makes it. I don't think that Vucevic will make it. Those guys are on the outside looking in. So my prediction for those final two spots, LaMelo Ball and Jared Allen, I think Garland will be on the outside. I think he has just as strong of a case as LaMelo Ball. I just don't think they're likely to take two Cavs and take no Hornets. And I'm saying that as a Cavs fan, feeling that Darius Garland is a more important part to this team's future than Jared Allen. But I just don't think that that really matters in this case. I think this is all about positions and peers. And Jared Allen has very few peers, whereas Darius Garland, there is a lot of quality point guard play in the Eastern Conference. The centers in the East go Joel Embiid, far above everyone, Jared Allen, distinct number two, and then below him this season, because of injuries, is Bam Adebayo. Of course, Bam is an elite level center when he's healthy, but this is not an all-star season for him over Jared Allen, simply due to health. Those are the three bigs that I would consider traditional true big men, I don't think you can keep Allen out. Now, unless you skew so heavy on guards, because there's so many good guards in the East, Allen seems like a sure thing to me. The Cavs' schedule this month has allowed them to string together a ton of wins, and they're going to get a ton more before All-Star break. And when they announce these reserves, all the momentum 
is going in Cleveland's favor to say nothing of the fact that the game is being held in Cleveland. Plus, and I didn't even bring this up yet, but you always have to account for injuries that could happen or guys missing the game. It happens every year. There's always a couple of guys who maybe didn't make it initially but get slid in there as injury replacements. Devin Booker, for example, last year. So we know that Durant's not playing. The chances of the Cavs being in the top three in the East at All-Star break, it seems like basically a lock. And the odds of them having the Rookie of the Year favorite, two NBA All-Stars, a guy who's at least going to be probably in the top five when it comes to sixth man of the year voting in Kevin Love. I don't think anyone beats Tyler. He's going to win it. But Kevin Love, when you look at his efficiency and his numbers, we were discussing this the other day uh, amongst a group of my friends that talks about basketball stuff all the time. This season is Kevin Love's most efficient season in terms of win shares per minute on the court, win shares per 48 minutes. Since the season he ended in Minnesota, averaging, you know, 25, 15, and 4, or around there. And I'm just rounding up. But that massive season that led everybody to be like, oh my God, we got to get Kevin Love to Cleveland. That season was the last time he's been as productive in contributing to positive winning basketball as he has been this season. And this season is his best season in both effective field goal percentage and true shooting percentage. For his entire career, he has never been more efficient than he has been this season at the age of 33. It's unbelievable. And you can't say enough about this guy. This is somebody who everybody said you'd have to pay to get off. Uh, uh, uh. Thanks, Colin Cowherd. Or that you should just get rid of for nothing. That it was addition by subtraction. And now you look at next season, his final year, where his salary goes down the way that he's playing right now. About as spry as he's looked in ages. I wonder what Colangelo is thinking right now after having ripped him during that stint in the Olympic trials there where he didn't look good and he ended up leaving the team. He came back before he was ready. And Colangelo took a shot at him, needlessly, when he was trying to play for his country. Everybody panned the guy at the time. But it has to make you wonder, if it put a chip on Kevin Love's shoulder that in combination with the idea that he was going to be coming off the bench motivated him to really focus on what mattered most, which was playing the best basketball possible. Because all the things, the summer of Kevin and the, you know, Banana Republic, or I think that's who, he, who his sponsorship is with. But like all those off the court things that people said, oh, he's, he's looking beyond basketball. Well, it certainly doesn't seem the case now because he's invested when he's out of the game on the sideline. He's celebrating. It is a revelation between last year and this year for those two guys. And by those two, I mean Love, of course, and Osman. It's unbelievable. Now let's get into some of the stuff that he discussed with J.J. Redick. Since I'm on the subject of Love, let's just stay on that. J.J. Redick put the question to him about the difference in terms of last year and this year. Now he had some real long-form answers. I'm playing some excerpts here, but I do recommend... You either go to the podcast or you go to YouTube, you listen to some of the answers in totality. But this was Kevin Love speaking to how he handled the struggles of the past few seasons with the Cavs versus what seems to be a very happy Kevin Love right now. People are like, oh, I don't regret anything. I wouldn't have changed anything. It's like, okay, bullshit. Like there are things I would have done differently. You know, I, I think a lot of times either my emotions got the best of me 
you know, I said things without just digesting and, you know, reflecting on what had just happened and just moments of, you know, maturation and, and, and growth. But I'm, I'm at the same time, yeah, I may regret those things, but I'm, I'm thankful that they, they happened because I think I'm a better communicator, leader, uh, fiance, like, you know, all that stuff across the board. I'm kind of glad that Kevin Love has taken so many bullets in the last year or two for the outbursts and then the Olympic team, because it does seem that he's a very introspective guy who is refocused on what's truly important. And it's not counting numbers for him. You can tell by the way that he talks about how fun, and this is also from that same interview, he talks about how fun this Cavalier team is and the culture. The one thing I've noticed in watching the Cavs is that it looks like fun. And it looks like you yourself are having a ton of fun this season. Oh, I really am. I mean, in, in, a, in a big way, these guys you know, make me excited to come to work. We all celebrate each other. Um, we've developed a culture. We didn't force it. It just has happened. Our communication is very high level. Um, and that starts with JB. He's just a very effective and high level communicator. Every, everybody just celebrating each other from, from JA to, you know, young Ev to, to, to Darius making the next step. We're like the biggest share of the wealth team in the NBA. I think this is the most infectious part of this whole experience is of course I love winning, but and maybe I'm a prisoner of the moment. I don't know. But the way the Cavs are winning these games is so much more satisfying to me than watching the Cavs win a ton of games behind what were consistent superhuman efforts from LeBron James when he was with his previous Cavs stint. Because while those teams were great, and while I would never trade that championship for anything, there's something about watching a collection of parts that may not have the generational transcendent star power of LeBron. But collectively, you see so many guys on this roster. Now, LeBron raised nearly everybody around him. But every time he left the game to go to the bench or when he'd be out for any extended period, you saw how difficult it was to succeed without that one critical cog. Meanwhile, on the Cavs, I think you just have this iteration of the Cavs. You just have multiple pieces who are raising the floor of the guys around them. And of course, Garland is a fundamental component of that. But you see the same thing to a lesser degree with Evan Mobley. His defensive versatility has raised the ability of everyone around him. Kevin Love included. Kevin Love is having his best you know, defensive basketball plus minus in years. And a lot of that is because with all these players excelling in their defined roles and being much more versatile than we've seen in the past, we had too many guys who were one-way players. Now this roster is littered with guys who are making an impact on both sides of the ball and whose skills are raising the guys around them. And a lot of that can be attributed to Kobe Altman constructing a roster where we have seen the team defense make massive leaps. And we have seen the skills of Garland and Mobley and Allen just gel perfectly together. And that's what kind of makes this viewing experience so fun is because it does feel like this is a true team effort as opposed to what was an incredible run from one of the all-time greats of the game with LeBron James. So maybe I'm a prisoner of the moment, but I don't think I am. I think I just enjoy this brand of basketball far more. And I, and I probably will feel that way even without a championship if we can sustain this 
for a long period of time. If they succeed in this way, gone are the jokes about how, well, it was just LeBron. Cleveland's always sucked. No, this is a team and a culture and a system that has been built from the ground up with no shortcuts. They drafted Garland. They took bullets for it because they had Sexton back there already. He's proving to be one of the best young point guards in the game. They traded for Allen when they already had Drummond under contract. And people question that. Well, why would you even do that? It's You're destroying your team chemistry because Drummond, you brought in his replacement and you won't even commit to him long term. You should have got rid of Drummond first. People took bullets for that. And then this year, there was a lot of people who said, okay, well, if you can't get Cade, if you can't get Jalen Green, maybe you consider a trade back. They held firm. They took Mobley. And now... They've been blessed with the best rookie in the class and the guy who most people think will have the largest impact on winning for the rest of his career. It's one season in. I I think it's always premature to write off guys this quickly, but certainly he looks like the type of plug-and-play guy who would succeed and raise the floor around him on any team that he's on. And I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but my point was this is such an enjoyable experience just to witness. I can imagine that Kevin Love is having an amazing time, and he speaks to that in this clip from Old Man in the Three with J.J. Redick. Winning solves a lot of things. This is what the NBA is meant to be. Like This is a, a special moment. People are seeing it from 10,000 feet, looking, looking down on it, but it's, it's real. Like Our, our unit is, is incredibly cohesive, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see within our organization how these guys are taking the steps and not skipping any. So there's plenty more of good points that he brings up in there. He talks about J.B. Bickerstaff and the relationship that he has with him and how it eased this transition. And he touches on Mobley and how unique he is and some of the skills that he has. He talks about how one of the things that people had a misconception about, myself included, was that he's this finesse big. But we've seen it. He likes to bang. And he's using, even though he doesn't have the weight right now, it really just makes it all the more encouraging. Because we're seeing him take advantage, and he's excellent at pump fakes already. When he puts more strength on him, and he's able to just put a guy into the basket, it's going to open up a whole new aspect of his game for him. He's largely getting by on finesse and intelligence and knowing how to draw guys into positions where they're compromised and he can finish through contact. But there's going to be a point where he doesn't even have to make moves. He doesn't even have to use the threat of a pump fake, where when he adds some muscle, he'll be capable of overpowering a fair amount of guys in the league. Now, another subject I wanted to talk about was what has developed with the Ricky Rubio season-ending torn ACL injury. The Cavs applied for a disabled player exception and were granted it by the NBA worth $8.9 million. They have until March 10th to use this exception, and they can use it in a number of ways. They could bring in somebody who's currently unsigned and sign him into that exception. They could absorb someone in a trade. And of course, that opens up a lot more exciting possibilities. Just looking at some of the guys that fall into that general exception range of people who make less than $9 million but expire this year, you've got Dennis Schroeder, you've got Kendrick Nunn, uh, Corey Joseph, And those aren't game changers, certainly, but those are guys who perhaps could provide some minutes and have a role for you. You're adding around the edges. You're not going to get a game changer for that level of money. Now, Rubio's contract gives you more possibilities. 
I don't even know if I'm for trading that. It just would depend on what the options are. You could expand the deal, but things like Rubio for Levert, those don't seem realistic. Everything that we're reading is stuff like the Pacers want two first-round picks for Levert. And a guy that injury-prone with only a year left on his deal after this, he's not worth that to me. Especially considering how the Cavs' player development has been. They've been great at making the most out of their draft choices, and while certainly their draft choice will not be a lottery pick this year, two first-round draft choices on a team where we already are pretty deep and pretty loaded, I don't know if you run that risk for a guy who could disrupt your chemistry or have expectations of his role. Watching that Milwaukee game, the ball movement was absolutely unbelievable. The sharing of the basketball, dispersal of looks and shot attempts, it's always a risk when you bring in a relatively high-usage, high-skill player that he's just not going to gel. And, and that's sort of the same concerns that exist with Colin Sexton is that everybody knows he's an awesome player. We just don't know what we're going to see when he's reintegrated into a system which has evolved in his absence to one which is a much more cohesive offense. That's not a denigration, Colin Sexton. I can't wait till he gets back. But certainly, I think there could be some hiccups in the initial reacclimation into the rotation for Colin Sexton. Hopefully, that's happening during training camp or at a time where it's not critical, because as excited as I am by the prospect of him being back in the playoffs, I'm equally a little bit anxious what it will do trying to reintegrate him at a time where we're taking on top-level opponents, where every win and every possession potentially could matter. But back to the present, the Cavs do have options. They have options with Rubio. They have options with that exception, but you need to be very deliberate and consider all the possibilities, and, and especially bad teams don't have to consider the impact on the chemistry. When they brought in Drummond, that was a risk worth making. It cost him a second-round pick, and who knows? Could work out great. It didn't, obviously, but then the Allen thing happened. That's all a moot point. Kendrick Perkins, though, brings up a good point. We can't operate like losers anymore because... Their ceiling is the conference finals. Boom! You said it, Kendrick, but I support your optimism. I hope that's the case. And nothing but good things ahead. There is a slim outside chance that we could be looking at two All-Stars, a Coach of the Year, a GM of the Year, a Sixth Man of the Year, top three finish, and maybe, even with Garland, a Most Improved Player, top three finish. One more NBA story I wanted to touch on before we wrap this episode of the Fear the Fro podcast. James Harden in the news for his seeming discontent with the Brooklyn Nets and probably the actions of Kyrie Irving, if we're being honest here. James Harden got traded to the Nets last season, and it looked like that trio of Durant, Irving, and Harden would be unstoppable. But injuries derailed that in the playoffs last season, and this year, Injuries again rearing their head with Durant going down for an extended period. But more importantly, you have the conscious decision of Kyrie Irving to not play in half the games, which is an impediment to Brooklyn piling up wins. So they're still a good team, but Harden is at that point in his career where he wants very specific things. He wants to compete for titles. He wants to win. And I think he wants to be a part of a team that is all on the same page. Now, maybe he always knew he wanted to be in Philadelphia. There are many rumors and suggestions of collusion between Daryl Morey, his former general manager who's now in Philadelphia, and him trying to manufacture his arrival in Philadelphia. But essentially, none of that matters if it's not provable. 
we're looking at a very interesting situation. The Nets could decide that there's far too great of a risk that Harden walks away for nothing in the summer, and they could trade him preemptively before the trade deadline. Or they could roll the dice, hope that the team gets healthy, hope that something changes and that Kyrie can play in the postseason, and hope that they win a title, which would smooth over a lot of things because, as Kevin Love pointed out earlier, winning cures a lot of things. And they could go into this summer. But at that point, James Harden has all the leverage as soon as this summer arrives because he can essentially use the threat of walking away for nothing to allow him to dictate what teams he's willing to be traded to. And at that point, the Nets are forced to take back the best package they can get for Harden from one of his preferred destinations. So if Harden goes to the Nets and says, I want to go to Philadelphia, well then almost certainly the Nets are going to take Simmons and whatever package they put together focused around him because the alternative is you get nothing. And that would be devastating to their ability to put a title contender around Durant and Irving. So again, we're at another situation. It really is interesting to, to look at what's happened with Kyrie since that title in Cleveland and see that he has strung together some incredible basketball. He's still a great player, but he's also devastated three teams consecutively now from a continuity and cohesion standpoint. First, he slammed the title window shut on the Cavs. Then he went to Boston, a team that almost made it to the NBA Finals, led by Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown on rookie contracts, like very young players. And he was supposed to be the veteran that pushed them over the top. And less than two years later, he was walking away, leaving Boston with nothing for what they traded for him except disarray. And now he goes to Brooklyn. And ironically, James Harden could essentially pull a reverse Kyrie here, which is force his way out and force the Nets to make the best of the situation. Now in the Celtics case, they managed to get Kemba Walker, but that clearly did not work out. Now the Nets might be forced to do the same thing in bringing in Simmons because the alternative is losing him for nothing. So it is a little bit ironic and feels kind of like justice that Kyrie is seeing another guy potentially and James Harden do the same thing to his handpicked team that he did to the Boston Celtics and the Cavaliers before that. So I will be eager to see who moves where at this trade deadline. But just the headlines making the rounds this week in terms of the Pacers' demands and, and what Harden wants and other guys who could potentially be moved, I do not expect to see anything in the way of the Lakers getting any substantial talent, the packages that they keep putting out in terms of, oh, for Jeremy Grant, we'll give you Taylor Horton Tucker in a pick five years from now. The reality is no GM wants a first-round pick in 2027 because if he's on a team that isn't succeeding, there's a good chance he's not even going to be the GM then. That is so far out. The value of a first-round pick that far down the line is minimal unless it's completely unprotected. And even then, I don't know that that's the package I would want to focus my efforts around. So, But I do think we're going to see some interesting things come up in terms of Jeremy Grant almost certainly will be moved somewhere. But there are a lot of other names out there on the rumor mill with the Hawks underachieving. Collins has been brought up. He similarly seems discontent with his role. That has some strange parallels to the Ben Simmons situation. He just signed a five-year, $125 million exception or extension. rather, And he's already seemingly unhappy. You hope you can work through that. But 
certainly those are some of the difficulties that come with having a downturn of a season after a year in which you went to the Eastern Conference Finals. So a lot to happen in the next couple weeks here, but I'll be back with another episode of the Fear the Fro podcast. Please, in the meantime, if you like what you hear, leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends, follow me at Fear the Fro Pod on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and thank you for listening. I am Bob Schmidt, lifelong Cleveland Cavalier fan and voice of Fox Sports Radio. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. Hopefully next episode, I'll be celebrating two Cavalier All-Stars. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro It's over! Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel! Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.